Welcome to Petrifaction. I'm your host, Petey. And if you like stories about ghosts, monsters, vampires, the weird and mysterious, UFOs, Bigfoot, and other cryptids, you're in the right place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Remember, friends, be prepared to be petrified. So today's show is dedicated to Jersey Week. If you know what Jersey Week is, you're probably from Jersey and you might even have been down to Florida. If you don't know what Jersey Week is, let me just put it out there for you. Jersey Week is a crowding phenomenon known widely in Disney World and to a lesser extent, the other parks in Orlando such as SeaWorld, and uh, the Universal Resorts. Jersey Week's a real crowding phenomenon that happens in early November of every year. Each year, the New Jersey Educational Association holds a convention that includes a Thursday and a Friday, and typically the Thursday and Friday that end the first full week of November. New Jersey public schools are closed at least those two days, and many families in response head down to Walt Disney World for either a long weekend or for the entire week. Consequently, Walt Disney World is more crowded during Jersey Week than it is the weeks before and after. This year, Jersey Week is this week that I'm recording November 1st through November 5th. So, all you Jersey folks who just came back from Walt Disney World. The show's dedicated to you. Hope you had a great time. Today's story is called The Watcher. It's about a couple 
young children who purchased their dream house in Westfield, New Jersey. But their dream house soon turned into a living nightmare. One night in June of 2014, Derek Broadus had just finished an evening of painting at his new home in Westfield, New Jersey, when he went outside to check the mail. Derek and his wife Maria had closed on the six-bedroom house at 657 Boulevard three days earlier and were doing some renovations before they moved in. So there wasn't much in the mail except a few bills and a white card-shaped envelope. It was addressed in thick, chunky handwriting to the new owner and the typed note inside began warmly. Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. For the Broadduses buying 657 Boulevard had fulfilled a dream. Maria was raised in Westfield and the house was just a few blocks from her childhood home. Derek grew up in working class Maine, then moved his way up the ladder at an insurance company in Manhattan to become a, to become a senior vice president with a salary large enough to afford the $1.3 million home. The Broadduses had bought 657 Boulevard just after Derek celebrated his 40th birthday and their three kids were already debating which of the house's fireplaces Santa Claus would use. But as Derek kept reading the letter from his new neighbor, it took a turn. How did you end up here? The writer asked. Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? The letter went on. 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I've been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s and my father watched in the 1960s. It's now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls? of 657 Boulevard. Why are you here? I will find out. The author's reconnaissance had apparently already begun. The letter identified the Broadduses' Honda minivan as well as the workers renovating the home. I see already that you have flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be. The person wrote, Tisk, 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 bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. Earlier in the week, Derek and Maria had gone to the house and chatted with their new neighbors while their children, who were 5, 8, and 10 years old, ran around the backyard with several kids from the neighborhood. The letter writer seemed to have noticed. You have children. I have seen them. So, f so far, I think there are three that I have counted. The anonymous correspondent wrote, 
before asking if there were more on the way. Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it greed to bring my or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. The envelope had no return address. Who am I? The person wrote. There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I'm in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I am in one. Look out the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. The letter concluded with a suggestion that this message would not be the last. Welcome, my friends, welcome. Let the party begin. Followed by a signature typed in a cursive font, The Watcher. It was after 10 p.m. and Derek Broadus was alone. He raced around the house, turning off lights so no one could see inside. Then he called the Westfield Police Department. An officer came to the house, read the letter, and said, What the fuck is this? He asked Derek if he had any enemies and recommended moving a piece of construction equipment from the back porch in case the watcher tried to toss it through a window. Derek rushed back to his wife and kids who were living at their old home elsewhere in Westfield. That night, Derek and Maria wrote an email to John and Andrea Woods, the couple who had sold them the house, to ask if they had had any idea who the watcher might be or why he or she had written. I asked the Woods to bring me young blood and it looks like they listened. Was your old house too small for the growing family, or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. Andrea Woods replied the next morning, a few days before moving out. The Woodses had also received a letter from the watcher. The note had been odd, she said, and made similar mention to the watcher's family observing the house over time. But Andrea said she and her husband had never received anything like it in their 23 years in the house and had thrown the letter away without much thought. That day, the Woodses went with Maria to the police station where Detective Leonard Lugo told her not to tell anyone about the letters, including her new neighbors, most of whom she had never met, and now all of whom were suspects. The Broadduses spent the coming weeks on high alert. Derek canceled a work trip, and whenever Maria took the kids to their new house, she would yell their names if they wandered into a corner of the yard. When Derek gave a tour of the renovation to a couple on the block, he froze when the wife said, it'll be nice to have some young blood in the neighborhood. The Broadduses' general contractor arrived one morning to find that a heavy sign he'd hammered into the front yard had been ripped out overnight. Two weeks after the letter arrived, 
Maria stopped by the house to look at some paint samples and to check the mail. She recognized the thick black lettering on a card-shaped envelope and called the police. Welcome again to your new home at 657 Boulevard, the watcher wrote. The workers have been busy and I have been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. If they found what is in the walls yet, in time I'm sure they will. This time the watcher had addressed Derek and Maria directly, misspelling their names as Mr. and Mrs. Braddis. Had the watcher been close enough to hear one of the Braddis's contractors addressing them? The watcher boasted of having learned a lot about the family in the preceding weeks, especially about their children. The letter identified the Broadus's three kids by birth order and by their nicknames, the ones Maria had been yelling. I am pleased to know your names now and the names of the young blood you've brought to me, it said. You certainly say their names often. The letter asked about one child in particular, whom the writer had seen using an easel inside an enclosed porch. Is she the artist in the family? The letter continued. 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It's been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all of the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement? Or are they afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic? Or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard Allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher, and I've been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life. It's my obsession. And now you are too, Braddis family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard. Now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving day. You know I will be watching. Just a quick fun fact about New Jersey. Did you know New Jersey has more racehorses than Kentucky? Yeah, think about that for a minute. Derek and Maria stopped bringing their kids to the house. They were no longer sure when or if they would move in. Several weeks later, a third letter arrived. 
Where have you gone to? The watcher wrote. 657 Boulevard is missing you. The letters did indicate proximity. They had been processed in Kearney, the U.S. Postal Service's distribution center in northern New Jersey. The first was postmarked June 4th, before the sale was public. The Woodses had never put up a for sale sign, and only a day after the contractors arrived. The renovations were mostly interior, and people who lived nearby say they didn't notice an unusual commotion, even from the jackhammering in the basement. When Derek and Maria walked Detective Lugo around the house, they showed him that the easel on the porch was hidden from the street by vegetation, making it difficult to see unless someone was behind the house or right next door. A few days after the first letter, Maria and Derek went to a barbecue across the street, welcoming, welcome, welcoming them and another new homeowner to the block. The Broadduses hadn't told anyone about the watcher, as the police had instructed, and found themselves scanning the party for clues while keeping tabs on their kids who ran guilelessly through a crowd that made up much of the suspect pool. We kept screaming at them to stay close, Maria said. People must have thought we were crazy. At one point, Derek was chatting with John Schmidt, who lived two doors down, when Schmidt told him about the Langfords, who lived between them. Peggy Langford was in her 90s, and several of her adult children, all in their 60s, lived with her. The family was a bit odd, Schmidt said, but harmless. He described one of the younger Langfords, Michael, who didn't work and had a beard like Ernest Hemingway, as kind of a Boo Radley character. Derek thought the case was solved. The Langford house was right next to the easel on the porch. The family had lived there since the 60s, and when the watcher's father, the letter said, had begun observing 657 Boulevard, Richard Langford the family patriarch, had died 12 years earlier, and the current watcher claimed to have been on the job for the better part of two decades. When the Broadduses told Lugo about the family, he said he already knew, and a week after the first letter arrived, he brought Michael Lamford to police headquarters for an interview. Michael denied knowing anything about the letters, but the Broadduses say that Lugo told them that the narrative of what he said matched things mentioned in the letters. This isn't CSI Westfield, Lugo later told the Broadduses. When the wife is dead, it's the husband. But there wasn't much hard evidence, and after a few weeks, the police chief told the Broadduses that, short of an admission, there wasn't much the department could do. This is someone who threatened my kids, and the police are saying, Probably nothing's going to happen, Derek said. Well, probably isn't good enough for me. After the second letter, Derek told the cops that if they didn't take care of the situation, they would have a different kind of case on their hands. This person attacked my family, and where I'm from, if you do that, you get your ass beat, Derek told me. Frustrated, the Broadduses began their own investigation. Derek became especially obsessed. He set up webcams in 657 Boulevard and 
spent nights crouched in the dark waiting to see if anyone was watching the house at close range. Maria thought I was crazy, he told me recently at a coffee shop in Manhattan where he covered a table with documents relating to the case, including copies of the letters which he and his wife had shared with only a few friends and family members. He showed me a map displaying when each of 657's neighbors had moved in. The Langfords were the only ones there since the 60s, with overlays marking possible sight lines for the easel and a circle for approximate range of earshot to estimate who might have heard Maria yelling their kids' names. Only a few homes fit both criteria. The Broadduses also turned to several experts. They employed a private investigator who staked out the neighborhood and ran background checks on the Lankfords, but didn't find anything noteworthy. Derek reached out to a former FBI agent who served as the inspiration for Clary Starling in The Silence of the Lambs. They were on a high school board of trustees together, and they also hired Robert Lenahan, another former FBI agent, to conduct a threat assessment. Lenahan recognized several old-fashioned ticks in the letters that pointed to an older writer. The envelope was addressed to M slash M Broadus. The salutations included the day's weather, warm and humid, sunny and cool for a summer day, and the sentences had double spaces between them. The letters had a certain literary panache, which suggested a voracious reader and a surprising lack of profanity given the level of anger, which Lenahan thought meant a less macho writer. Maybe, he wondered, the Watcher had seen The Watcher, starring Keanu Reeves as a serial killer who stalks the detective trying to catch him. Lenahan didn't think The Watcher was likely to act on the threats, but the letters had enough typos and errors to imply a certain erraticism. The first letter was dated Tuesday, June 4th, but that day was a Wednesday. There was also a seething anger directed at the wealthy in particular. The watcher was upset by new money moving into town. Are you one of those Hoboken transplants who are ruining Westfield? And by the Broadduses' relatively modest renovations, the house is crying from all of the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You are stilling its history. It cries for the past and what used to be in the time when it, when I roamed its halls. In the 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard, when I ran from room to room, imagining the life with the rich occupants there. The house was full of life and young blood. When it got old, so did my father, but he kept watching until the day he died. And now I watch and wait for the day... And I wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. Lenahan recommended looking into former housekeepers or their descendants. Perhaps the watcher was jealous that the Broadduses had bought a home that the writer couldn't afford. But the focus remained on the Langfords. 
In cooperation with Westfield Police, the Broadduses sent a letter to the Langfords announcing plans to tear down the house, hoping to prompt a response, but nothing happened. Detective Lugo brought Michael Langford in for a second interview, but got nowhere, and his sister Abby accused the police of harassing their family. Eventually, the Broadduses hired Lee Levitt, a lawyer who met with several members of the Langford family as well as their attorney to show them the letters along with photos explaining how their home was one of only a few vantage points from which the easel could be seen. The meeting grew tense, Levitt told me, and the Langfords insisted Michael was innocent. One night, Derek had a dream in which he confronted Peggy, the eldest Langford, and demanded that she build an eight-foot fence between the properties. Maria was having other kinds of dreams. One night she woke up to an especially vivid one about a man who lived nearby. He was wearing these boots and carrying a pitchfork and calling to the kids and I couldn't get to them in time, Maria said. She thought almost anyone could be the watcher, which made daily life feel like navigating a labyrinth of threats. She probed the faces of shoppers at Trader Joe's to see if they looked strangely at her kids and spent hours googling anyone who seemed suspicious. There were reasons to consider other suspects. For one thing, the police spoke to Michael before the second letter was sent, which would make sending two more especially reckless. The Broadduses say that Lugo told them they wouldn't receive any more letters after he spoke to Michael. Then, there was the rest of the neighborhood to consider. The private investigator found two child sex offenders within a few blocks. Bill Woodward, the Broadduses' house painter, had also noticed something strange. The couple behind 657 Boulevard kept a pair of lawn chairs strangely strangely close to the Broadduses' property. One day, I was looking out the window and I saw this older guy sitting in one of the chairs, Woodward told me. He wasn't facing his house. He was facing the Broadduses. But by the end of 2014, the investigation had stalled. The watcher had left no digital trail, no fingerprints, no way to place someone at the scene of the crime that could have been hatched from pretty much any mailbox in northern New Jersey. The letters could be read closely for possible clues or dismissed as the nonsensical ramblings of a sociopath. It was like trying to find a needle in a haystack, said Scott Kraus, who helped investigate the case for the Union County Prosecutor's Office. In December, the Westfield police told the Broadduses they'd run out of options. Derek showed the letters to his priest, who agreed to bless the house. Not long after, a family with grown children and two big dogs had agreed to rent 657 Boulevard. The renter told the Star-Ledger he wasn't worried about the watcher, though he had a clause in the lease that let him out in case of another letter. Two weeks later, Derek went to 657 to deal with squirrels that had taken up residence in the roof, and the renter handed him an envelope that had just arrived.
violent winds and bitter cold, to the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife Maria. This letter, two and a half years after the watcher appeared, came out of nowhere. It was dated February 13th, the day the Broadduses gave depositions in their lawsuit against the Woodses. You wonder who the watcher is. Turn around, idiots, the letter read. Maybe you even spoke to me, one of the so-called neighbors who has no idea who the watcher could be. Or maybe you do know and are too scared to tell anyone. Good move. The letter was less stylish and more wrathful than the others, and it seemed the writer had been closely following the story. They had seen the media coverage. I walked by the news trucks when you took over my neighborhood and mocked me. I watched as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me. Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. And the attempt to tear down the house. 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers of the boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. All hail the Watcher. The Renner was mentioned. He was spooked but agreed to stay if the Broadduses installed cameras around the house, and the letter indicated revenge could come in many forms. Maybe a car accident, maybe a fire, maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away but makes you feel sick day after day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet. Loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycles crash and bones break. It was like we were back at the beginning, said Maria. But it also meant fresh evidence that might help invigorate the investigation. Derek took the letter to the police headquarters, where a detective looked at a neighborhood map and traced a circle around the house 300 yards in diameter, suggesting the watcher must be somewhere in there. Derek drew one much closer. In my view, it's one of the ten houses in this world, he said. The Broadduses continued to press the case, but there still wasn't much for law enforcement to go on, and it was possible to look up and down, and it was possible to look up and down the street and see the watcher in practically everyone. Residents mentioned to me a teenager whose father had grown up around the corner, and a man who sometimes walked around the neighborhood playing a flute. An elderly couple behind the house had been there for forty seven years. The husband was the man Bill Will Woodward had seen sitting in a lawn chair looking at the Broaddus's house. One of their kids had married a man who grew up in, of all places, 657 Boulevard. But these were bits of information that could mean everything or nothing, depending on how hard you looked at them. The Broaddus's sent new names to the investigators whenever they found something odd, but their greatest fear was that the watcher could be someone they'd never expect. One day last spring, Derek picked me up at the Westfield train station. We drove past 657 Boulevard, which he and Maria try to avoid unless they have to pick up the tax bill. It's all beautiful trees and beautiful 
houses. But all I feel is anxious, Derek said. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night thinking, what would my life be like if this didn't happen? We lost Christmas a couple times, and you don't get that back. You don't get back Christmas with a five-year-old. The Broadduses no longer live in ever-present fear that the Watcher might strike at any moment, but they continue to deal with lingering effects from the letters. They have a new tenant at 657, but the rent doesn't cover the mortgage. Their kids are occasionally teased at school, and the conspiratorial rumors persist. Most people in Westfield told me that they rarely thought of the Watcher anymore. The real estate market was doing fine, for one, and many were surprised to find out the Broadduses were still dealing with the problem. Hindsight made Derek and Maria wonder if they should have sold the house at a loss early on. And 657 Boulevard conjured too much emotional pain for them to ever consider moving in. They hope that a few years of renting the place without incident will help them to sell it. The prosecutor's office was continuing its investigation, but the Broadduses knew it was unlikely the watcher would ever be caught and that the legal punishment would likely be minimal. The watcher had been obsessed with 657 Boulevard, and Derek, in turn, had become obsessed with the watcher and everything the letters had set in motion. It's like cancer, he told me. We think about it every day. Sitting at Westfield train station, Derek handed me his phone so I could read the fourth letter. You are despised by the house, it read, and the watcher won. New Jersey has the most diners in the world and is sometimes referred to as the diner capital of the world. And just a short little update then to the Watcher story. The Broadduses have actually sold the house. This happened just previous to COVID-19 pandemic starting. So they were um, owners of the house for several years before they were finally able to sell, but they finally were able to sell, but at a pretty significant loss. They paid $1.3 million for the house, and they put another 100000 in renovations into it. So they sold it for around $900,000, which is roughly half a million dollars in losses. I do hope for the Broadus' sake and their kids that wherever they've gone to, it's a much better place. And they don't have anything like this to deal with ever again. I don't even know what to think with this. It's so freaking odd and creepy. But that's the story for that. I think only in New Jersey something like this could happen, really. All right, folks, I think this is a wrap. That's all for today's podcast. I thank you for tuning in and I hope you like the show. 
If you did, please tell a friend, give us a rating, and hit subscribe. If you have a story you would like to share on Petrifaction, you can contact me at pd at petrifaction at protonmail.com. And remember to check out today's show notes for more information on today's stories. Please return next time to hear more stories. And friends, be prepared to be petrified.